This is my journey, inspired one story at a time. A library of leaders was created. It began as a journey to learn. As time went on, it began to grow. All it needed was a platform, and this podcast was created to listen, to inspire, to share. I am a storyteller, and this is my journey. Welcome to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. I'm your host, Steve Anderson, and today we have a very special guest in Sherry Baker. Sherry is the retired Deputy Chief of Police of Bellevue, Washington. She was a member of that police department from 1978 to 2013. Her position in leadership was to lead a department of 224 employees. She began her career as a patrol officer and moved up to become a police lieutenant, then a police captain, a police major, and eventually deputy chief of police. She has a Bachelor of Science in Law Enforcement Administration and has had training from the FBI National Academy. She also had training in international police management in Antwerp, Belgium. She has been a hostage negotiator for 20 years. She has also received the Commander's Award for Excellence. Welcome to the program, Sherry. I really appreciate you being here today. Well, thank you, Steve. I am very happy to be here also, and thank you again for asking. Uh, My pleasure. In 1978, I imagine there were very few women on any police force. What inspired you to enter this male-dominated career? When I graduated from high school, I really wasn't interested in going to college, at least right away. And I uh, worked in a restaurant for uh, a couple of years, and I realized that that was a non-starter for a career. So I applied at Bellevue Community College to uh, take some classes and try and decide what I wanted to do. When I signed up, they required that I uh, have some sort of field of study that uh, that I was interested in. I said, well, I don't have one. I'm, that's why I'm here to begin with. They said, well, you need, to, you need to sign up for something. So we were in this big auditorium, and as I'm looking around the room, they have, you know, for the English department and the math department, science, uh, other uh, career opportunities, and the whole place was packed. So I went to the area that had the shortest line, and that was law enforcement. <laughs> so, so, so I signed up for law enforcement, went back and took my uh, did everything I needed to to sign up. And then as I started taking the classes over the last over a year or so, I became interested in what law enforcement was all about. I didn't have any relatives in law enforcement, so I didn't really have a basis for stories and and uh, hearing about what law enforcement is really about. So as I took the classes, I became interested. I'd worked as a waitress for a couple of years, and I really enjoyed dealing with the public. And I felt that in law enforcement, I could work with the public and provide a service. Uh, I mean, as a waitress, you provide food, and in law enforcement, you provide a service of um, helping victims of crime and helping the community uh, become a better community. So that was that was my reasoning behind it. And at that time in 1978, or in, actually in 1977, Bellevue had a, an affirmative action hiring where they hired only women and minorities to increase the diversity of the department so that it looked more like the diversity of the community. Yeah. And, 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 and interesting. So now that you're in the uh, in the program and in the police department, do you think that women bring a different approach to community policing than men do? I think women bring a, a different approach to really just about any field uh, because we're just different. Uh, you know, you can try and treat everybody exactly the same, but in reality, it's not because women do uh, look at things differently. And in community policing, yes, I think uh, the community can at times look at a woman, a woman officer, and say, "Oh, much more approachable than maybe a male officer." And the reality is, is that both are just as approachable, but it's that perception. Yeah, sure. Uh, th- that would be one 
one thought as far as community policing goes. Okay, so you're in the police force now and you're kind of going through uh, from a patrol officer, uh, kind of moving up the ranks. When did you realize that management was the direction that you wanted your career to head towards? I would say after I had been an officer for about five years, um, I at that time I'd worked in as a patrol officer. Uh, I had worked narcotics for a brief time. At that time, the term was only for 18 months, so I worked that. Uh, I was had also been a field training officer in patrol, so I was training new officers, uh, even, even though I'd only been there for five years. And I'd also been a hostage negotiator for a couple of years, and I really enjoyed that work. And I was getting an overall perspective of what policing was all about in a, in a, in a bigger context. And at the same time, I'm looking at the supervisors that I had and the management team that I saw. And I thought I could, I could do this. I could be part of this. I could, uh, I enjoyed training being a training officer. And I thought, you know, looking at what a patrol supervisor does, a Lieutenant does, I felt I could do that and help both new officers and old officers do their jobs better. And that's when I started looking into it. It was a number of years later that I actually uh, promoted uh, it. Uh, I promoted in 1991. But during that time, it gave me a chance to work in di different areas. Uh, I worked as a property crimes detective. I was a firearms instructor, and I did a couple of other things. And I really enjoyed doing that, and I enjoyed the potential of being uh, a leader in the department. I felt that I was an informal leader uh, in that officers would come to me if they had questions or what have you. And I thought that it, it, it was like a feel-good moment that this is something that I could do yeah, so what, and I could do well. So how would you describe that leadership style? You just mentioned informal, but uh, what uh, if I were to say, what is your leadership style? How would you describe it? I would say... Uh, collaborative, that uh, in understanding in law enforcement, you can have uh, a collaborative approach to your leadership style uh, or, or what you're doing. But at the same time, that can change really in a moment where uh, it becomes uh, situational because you have a, you can have a high risk and dynamic situation happen within a moment's notice and then you become basically authoritarian. Yeah, and I kind of, that's really interesting because kind of my next question along that that I think you're going to get into right here is, does your style have to be more of a military approach uh, due to the nature of the environment that you work under? Yes. it's it's uh, Law enforcement is considered a paramilitary organization in that uh, if you have a supervisor subordinate like you do in the military, and that if a supervisor gives you direction, you have to do it. You don't have a choice, unless, of course, it's unlawful, blah, you know, so on and so forth. But for the most part, yes, it is, it is a paramilitary organization. And uh, on the day-to-day -day issues, I would say I'm more collaborative. However, when it goes to that high-risk dynamic situation or something that's happening on the street, it becomes the authoritarian where I start just giving direction. You do this, you do that, and uh, have so this the situation can be resolved. And does that does that just come to you instinctively, or or do you have to, as a leader, have to say, okay, now I have to be this? I think it it's instinctive uh, in that when I see. A situation happens. So uh, let me just back up a little bit. So if you if you think about this, where your the patrol the patrol officers are out there just taking uh, taking patrol calls of you know car prowls or or what have you, and everything is there's nothing really a whole lot going on, and it comes over the radio that you have an armed robbery in progress. Okay, that gets everybody's. Uh, it's the big ad adrenaline dump, and it becomes a potentially high-risk situation. And 
the field supervisor, which would have been me, had has to give directions so that the officers know who's doing what, who's going to the scene, who's out looking for the suspect, uh, and how is that all going to be, how is that all going to line up and how is that going to happen? And that's where that instinctiveness happens, where as soon as that call goes down, I know exactly what I need to do as a supervisor to get those officers to where they need to be. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Now, you began in your leadership roles relatively early in your career in this predominantly male-dominated workforce and even more dominated by male by men in leadership ranks. So in this tight-knit subset of women in law enforcement, what were your unique leadership challenges with women officers? I would say, uh, reflecting back to... Uh, the years that I have worked in law enforcement, and this goes from really kind of day one to when I retired, that uh, wanting to see women promote and to do uh, uh, other things in law enforcement outside of patrol, which would be, you know, in investigations or uh, other other units. I look at where these uh, where I was, where there were no women and uh, no women supervisors, no women managers, uh, to when I retired, uh, the chief was uh, a woman. I was the dep. I was one of two deputy chiefs. There was a captain and several lieutenants and several corporals who were all women. And I look back at that and say, I had something to do with that. Because I, model, I modeled the behavior of what it looks like to be a woman in law enforcement and a woman who is a supervisor and a manager and an administrator. And I think all of that uh, allows the department to reflect the community uh, of having women in law enforcement uh, or, excuse me, women in supervisory and management roles. And I think that equals to public trust. If you see that the community, that the, the law enforcement agency looks like the community and that you see them in uh, administrative and supervisory roles, that creates uh, some public trust. Yeah, that's got to fill your heart with pride when you look back and, and you were the first and see all those uh special women that, that, uh, that followed you and came behind you. That's, that's gotta be a great feeling. It does. It is. It's a very good feeling. And, uh, I feel very, pr I feel very proud. I feel proud of the women who have stepped up to become leaders within the department. Yeah. You know, I've read that police officers fall kind of into two mindsets, uh, either the warrior or the protector. Um, if that's accurate, uh, what are most officers you worked with fall under, and, and should it be different in today's world? Well, that's, a, that's actually, that's an excellent question. Uh, it's, uh, I believe that over the years, law enforcement officers have always thought of themselves as the warriors. And as the culture in law enforcement has changed and how dealing with the community, I think I think officers now become more guardians as opposed to just the warriors. I mean, on a day-to-day -day basis, we are guardians of the community where we want to make sure that uh, we are caretakers, that the community is safe. However, we can go into warrior mode uh, when it goes down to that high risk and dynamic situation that occurs. So I think on the day-to-day -day basis, we're guardians. Um, but we can move into that warrior uh, mentality uh, when necessary. But I think it has evolved and changed where it was all warrior, and uh, and now it's moving more towards the guardian side of it. Yeah. What What was your experience and training at FBI headquarters in Virginia? Uh, the FBI National Academy is a leadership uh, course for. Uh, administrative law enforcement all over the world. And I took a number of uh, leadership courses. I took uh, constitutional law. We also had uh, physical training that was very rigorous. 
Now, understanding I was 50 years old when I went through that, and uh, it was it was a challenge. It was a challenge for me on the on the physical standpoint, but it was also a, uh, a time to connect with other law enforcement professionals all over the world. There were 25 uh, men and women uh, from organizations uh, uh, internationally, anywhere from uh, Israel to London to uh, Spain, uh, and then there were several in uh, South America and Latin America, or South America and uh, Mexico. So it was uh, it was a great training ground, and uh, it allowed me to develop uh, my sense of leadership and understanding leadership from others. Uh, a lot of it was collaborative working, and it really ins uh, inspired me to go back to my organization and say, how about if we start working on uh, different different programs? And, and, uh, and I felt that it was a very positive uh, interaction for both me and for uh, the organization. And when you came back with that, you might say, new approach, was it uh, embraced or was it... Uh kind of challenging the status quo, which uh, was hard to do. How, how did that go? You know, that, that is, I'm laughing. Uh, part of it was you had some of the, and I'll just say the old guard that said, oh, geez, here we go again. Somebody came back from the FBI Academy and they have a new program that we're going to start. Well, we've done this before. And then you have the others that said, this is really cool. Let's give it a shot. And so it's, it, uh, it's it's funny. How do you win over the some of the uh, the others that say, "Oh no, here we go again. It's another new program." And uh, um, my question to those that say, "Oh, here we go again," is why wouldn't you want to give it a shot? You have come to me and said, "Hey, how about this new program or this new uh, piece of equipment or this new training?" and I am more than willing to sit down and listen and have you explain why it's important. And a lot of times we've implemented what you've asked. So give me a shot. And, and it worked it, it, for some, not all, but for, for a few, you were able to bring them. You were, I was able to bring them over to the, let's see how this works out and let's make this better. Yeah, that's great. When you were talking about um, being back at the academy and, and you had exposure to a lot of law enforcement people throughout the world, are you all dealing with the same issues? Is it, the, is it uh, you know, this is what we're doing and it's it the same or is it different parts of the world, just a very different uh, beast? In different parts of the world, it, it can be a different beast. Uh, law enforcement for some uh, countries is they are uh, more military than paramilitary, where uh, they can be part of, uh, actually part of the military. And how they deal in policing uh, is a lot different. I mean, we have the, the United States Constitution. We have rules and regulations on how we, uh, what is acceptable behavior uh, what is acceptable out on the street and our rules of engagement. And for many law enforcement organizations uh, worldwide, they they have different rules. And so some of it's different. But when you look at uh, law enforcement within the United States, uh, we're all dealing with the same with the same issues and the same concerns. And uh, it was a it was a very thoughtful, time to hear what other law enforcement agencies were trying to do and trying to accomplish and some of the uh, areas of concern that they had and how they were dealing with them. Yeah. In all your training about human nature, uh, you know, and, and how we are as a society and whatever, uh, do you come out of it optimistic or are you pessimistic about mankind and our society? Oh, I'm very positive. I see really wonderful things that happen all the time with uh, a community and with the uh, 
with just people in general. I think people want to do the right thing. They want to they want to live in a safe community. And I don't think that will ever change. And they will look to law enforcement to how can we work together so that they feel safe. Uh, now that I'm not in law enforcement anymore, I want to be safe in my home and I want to feel safe in my community. And I may look to law enforcement to help that happen if I see something going on in the neighborhood uh, where I'd be more willing to call law enforcement to say, this is what I'm seeing. Can you help us out? Um, so, so yes, I have a very positive outlook on uh, on uh, the community and how I look at uh, just life in general. Yeah, that's that's reassuring because you know sometimes when you are exposed to all the the <laughs> ugly parts of society, it, it, you can see how you might get tainted a little bit. But I'm uh, I'm thrilled to hear that uh, uh, that you are optimistic and and that that feels that feels good. Well, I'm not saying I'm not a little tainted at times, but, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. but yes, I, I'm very optimistic in uh, in what what the community wants and uh, how how it's going to all how it's all going to end. Switching gears here a little bit, uh, how does someone become a hostage negotiator? Wow, that was many years ago, and this was in the 1980s. I, uh, I was asked by uh, the supervisor of the hostage negotiation team if I would be interested. And I mean, I jumped on it. I love talking to people. And uh, I, in the short time I'd been uh, a police officer, I talked to a lot of people who were in crisis and willing to take the time to resolve a situation no matter what it is. Uh, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. So, one of the things that uh, Bellevue required is that any hostage negotiator go through uh, training. There are several classes on hostage negotiation, so you get the idea of what it's all about. And then we were, uh, and then we went to the Seattle Crisis Clinic and, and was a, a worker on the phone lines for a year. And I found that experience uh, invaluable in dealing with people in crisis. And how to how to work with somebody in crisis, how to bring them uh, down, and how to try and resolve whatever the issues are. Um, and that, that really that was the training. And I I loved being a hostage negotiator and a team leader for 20 years. Uh, I felt very proud of it. Um, it's it was one of those situations where no matter uh, no matter who it was, even if it was uh, somebody that was, I consider a frequent flyer, somebody that we dealt with on a regular basis. I still enjoyed talking to him and him or her and talking, talking them into a situation where um, they could be safe, so whatever when, that was. And when you're negotiating with a criminal who, who has a hostage, uh, what are you really trying to accomplish in that uh, conversation? Two things. One is for them to release the hostage. And two, for them to uh, surrender. Those are those are the two main goals. And uh, I will say that I feel very fortunate that there were uh, a couple of well, I'd say I'd say three or four hostage situations uh, that were that I was actively involved in that were resolved, uh, where the hostage was released and the suspect surrendered. And what leadership skills are you using to try to de-escalate that situation? When you look back on those, uh, um, you know, that's an extreme example, but if we look at it in our day-to-day -day leadership uh, journeys, what, what, what skills worked effectively there that you can, you can identify? Um, I'd say for one of the biggest leadership skills is listening, active listening, and listening to what they have to say um, giving them the, the opportunity to feel that they have a voice in what's happening to them. And sometimes in a situation like that, whether it's a criminal or somebody who's having a mental emotional situation, uh, they really have a hard time 
dealing with anything at that point. I mean, they really start to shut down and to ask them a lot of questions. And, and it could be uh, important questions about their family. It could be uh, unimportant questions about um, how do you think the Mariners are doing? Uh, anything to get them to keep talking and to uh, get them to a point where they they know that, okay, I, I want to end this, but I want to, I don't want to end my life. So what, what do I do to, how do I get out of this mess that I just got myself into? And my job uh, as a negotiator is to walk them through that part of it. And I think from the leadership standpoint um, is that co collaboration of saying, okay, this is what I need you to do. Are you willing to do it? Let's work this, let's work this out together. And we can continue this conversation once you have uh, once once you've come out, and that we know that you're okay, and that everybody else is okay. Yeah, it's just fascinating when you think about it. I can only imagine the the, the tension in that, and and that uh, uh, not only are you trying to maneuver this tense situation, but you have lives at stake. And you know, most of us with our leadership challenges. Uh, uh, people aren't going to die. So it's just, uh, it's, it's a tough, uh, tough situation to imagine if having never been there. So. It is a tough situation. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those things that I really love about law enforcement is, is sometimes you just thrive on, um, on the adrenaline and knowing that what, that at the end of the day, I'm going to go home and either the suspect is either going to uh, go to jail because he, he or she committed a crime or that they're going to get help and that they will safely be in a, in a hospital situation uh, where they can get the mental health situation, uh, the mental health help that they need. Yeah. What was your biggest challenge in managing as uh, the deputy police chief? I would say uh, some of the disciplinary issues that came up. Um, part of what, you know, part of a deputy chief's position, I call it, it's kind of the assistant principal or the <laughs> vice principal, uh, of, of the organization where if something came up where there was a policy violation or a potential policy violation, it was my responsibility to, uh, to make recommendations if, uh, if there was going to be some sort of discipline and that could be up to and including uh, termination. Um, and that was one of the hardest things I had to do as a deputy chief. Do you think, and do you think most, most people in that situation, uh, that get themselves in that situation, is it, is it defiance? Is it, uh, is it not understanding or maybe not having the, the knowledge to know what it is or, um, or do people just screw up sometimes? What 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 is it that gets them to uh, to have to come to you and and uh, be in that conflict situation? And I would say all of the above. Um, sometimes people mess up. Uh, their heart was in the right place, but they thought that what they were doing was the right thing, and it just turned out it wasn't. So you have that aspect of it, and you have those that, and then the second second one would be those that didn't have the skill. And if, if it's minor enough, you go back and you retrain them so that they have the skills that you know that they have the skill. And then the, the third one, the, were they just defiant? Uh, those are the hard ones because if you, if you know that they're defiant and sometimes they'll even say, well, I, I didn't like the policy, so I didn't follow it. Um, well, that creates a bigger issue. <laughs> yeah, no question. You know, it, and it, it, let's dig deeper into that a little bit because it's kind of like um, if if we can agree, because this come up a lot in my interviews, that that we learn more from our uh, failures than our successes. And so, if if that's true, then um, 
I, I would just imagine in police forces today that there's that fear of making mistakes because you're you're being on camera uh-huh. all this all this time or much more, and and is that negatively affecting the performance of police officers? Is that a is that a help or a deterrent in in a you know because it's almost like I would almost think in a police force you can't make a mistake or it becomes national news or. Or, or somebody dies. It's it's a little harder to accept that you're going to have. It a is, and and I mean, uh, police officers are human, and we do make mistakes. We we make a lot of mistakes, and as you get more experienced and better training and better equipment, you be you make less and less mistakes. And uh, you know, I'll go back to just to give you a, a quick example. Um, a brand new officer that goes out on the street and they're making a, a contact in a traffic stop and they make some snarky remark to the motorist. Well, the motorist calls and says, hey, uh, officer so-and-so just made a snark- snarky remark and I don't appreciate it. I'd go back to that officer and said, did you say this? And they would always admit it. Yes, I did make that mistake or I made that, that snarky comment. It was like, why did you do it? And I want you to call that person. I want you to apologize to them. And that's on the minor end of it. Um, as they progress, they they don't do that. In uh, you know, mostly <laughs> some some still do. Um, but to answer your question regarding the video cameras, uh, a lot of officers feel that uh, it is. Uh, it is helpful more than hurtful in that it does record what happens uh, on a, on a contact or on a stop. And especially if it's a critical incident or it could be an officer involved shooting, that camera could potentially exonerate that officer uh, from uh, a comment or a lawsuit or somebody saying that they did something wrong, that they said this, they did that. And reality shows on the camera that they didn't do that. And a lot of officers feel that the, uh, the cameras are, are helpful. Uh, and there's going to be those that feel that, uh, I don't want to be watched 24 seven, uh, and uh, feel that it's something that's hurtful. And if they are planning to do something that is wrong or illegal, uh, or against policy and turn off their cameras, well, there's, there's another issue that is dealt with, uh, with many agencies with regards to that. Yeah. You know, and, and, and it's interesting, you know, in some communities across the U S uh, people see a police officer and fear is the first reaction shown. Um, and how did you overcome that and, and change that culture in a more positive direction? Because I think, you know, we all have our personal experiences and, and I know as a kid or a, a teenager, when, when I would see a police officer, it was, um, it was more of a, uh, uh, it was a positive feeling, mm-hmm. but there are some communities that that that's the fear, you mm-hmm. know, it's like, Oh my gosh, there's a police officer. And then you have fear. So that would be, I uh, imagine very hard to overcome. It is very hard to overcome. And w- one way to, uh, have, uh, the community and the police department, uh, kind of come together because one, one thing, if you fear something and then you're exposed to that, uh, whatever that fear is, it could be say law, law enforcement. So the community fears law enforcement, and then you have law enforcement go to the community and start talking with them. Sit down and talk with them. Have a cup of coffee, and talk about your concerns and your uh, your fears. And and as time goes on, uh, that lessens. And that's uh, you know that's what community policing is all about. Uh, having the officers and the and the law enforcement go to the community and not expect the community just to come to law enforcement and say, hey, I'm afraid of you and I don't want to be afraid of you. Well, that's not going to happen. So community community policing is all about having law enforcement go out to the community and make those contacts and those connections, whether it's through businesses, through the schools, uh, through just about any uh any avenue to, to allow law enforcement to have that interaction. And that will in itself reduce fear. Yeah. You led many different units in law enforcement. Uh, was there one that stood out for you? Uh, and what leadership moves did you make that resulted in it being a success for you as a leader? 
You know, one of one of my favorite, absolute favorite uh, units that I had a chance to be involved in is the SRO or the School Resource Officer Program. Uh, it, I was asked to start to, to be the to help with the startup of it, and it was it was fun. I mean, it was just fun. I went out to the schools. I went to the PTA. I went to uh, some of the student body uh, pre uh, presidents and some of the st student body uh, counselors to meet with them to say, we're going to start this program and we're going to have law enforcement officers come into the high schools, to each of the, each of the four high schools. And I want you to help us build this program. So it's not just us just bombarding our way into the schools and say, okay, now law enforcement is not going to just sit in the parking lot. We're going to be part of your school, but we want to know what you need and what you expect from us. And in most cases, the parents, the teachers, the administrators, and a lot of the students were happy to see law enforcement in the schools. Uh, it made them feel safe. Uh, at that time, there was, you know, there between, with officer, or excuse me, with school shootings, uh, with having intruders come in, meaning uh, having gang members come into the schools, uh, all sorts of issues that schools deal with, especially high schools. Uh, the, the belief was that having law enforcement come in would uh, create a safer environment. And in one of the schools, one of the uh, PTA, or excuse me, one of the student body uh, council members came up to me and said, we don't want you in our school. Uh, we don't want law enforcement here. They carry guns. Uh, that's a, basically a recipe for disaster. And we don't want to have your officers shoot any of our students for smoking. <laughs> and oh, and <laughs> I said, okay, well, first of all, uh, that wouldn't happen. And however, I'm going to challenge you to, uh, to, to help us. So I understand that you don't want to have a law enforcement officer in your school. Um, however, uh, a lot of the parents, a lot of the teachers, and a lot of the student body and the police department is willing to take this chance uh, to see how we do. So I'm going to challenge you that at the end of the school year, I'm going to come back and I'm going to ask you to grade us and see how we do with having a law enforcement officer in your school. And it was probably about three months later. It was after it was after the uh, the winter break. I was actually at the school uh, working with the uh, SRO in there, and I came across the uh, student body council. And I asked her, I said, so how are we doing? She goes, okay, you guys get an A, just a flat out A. And uh, <laughs> I said, okay, why? Why do we get an A? She said, the officer that came into our school is absolutely fantastic. He comes into our classes. He's taught some classes with us. Uh, he runs track with uh, the track team. And he's just all around a good man. And uh, he, she just basically said, I would have never in a million years felt that I would want to have a law enforcement officer. And she says, it completely changed my mind. And I mean, to me, that is an absolute success. And that's that collaboration of working with the community in each aspect of it, where you have the parents, the teachers, the students, uh, and the the. PTSA and all of those organizations to come together to work together to have uh, a very high functioning uh, program. And to this day, the SRO program is still in the schools. Yeah, that's great. That's that's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. When when people go off on judging law enforcement on TV or social media or even face to face conversations, uh, do you feel defensive? No, no, no. It's it's like turn off your TV. Turn the channel. Go watch something else. That's <laughs> you know, not reality. It's uh, uh, there was something going on social media that maybe you've seen, and it was uh, an example of uh, 
a neighbor being very concerned about these kids sledding on the street and it was unsafe. And so she called the police. And so the officer went to check it out. And, and the next scene on the video was, uh, the officer going down the hill on the sled with the kids hooting and hollering. And so I thought that was a, uh, that's a good way to get the, to, to, to be part of the community and feel like, um, you know, you're, you're collaborating with things cause it, it wasn't that unsafe. They were just having fun and, and he had fun with them. I thought it was pretty, pretty funny video. That is community policing at its best. So what can we all learn from your experiences to be good community neighbors? It's, it's, a, it's a great question. To be a good community neighbor is to reach out and talk to your neighbors. And if you, if you have a concern, if you have an issue, go talk to them. Uh, find out what the issues are. Why are you concerned? I mean, it may turn out that it's really not that big of a concern after all. And you may find a new friend in that community. I, I think that's really what it's all about. And uh, it goes back to the community policing, whether it's law enforcement reaching out to the community or just community neighbors reaching out to other neighbors. Instead of calling the police to asking us to help solve an issue, um, call them up and talk to them, or at least reach over the fence and shake their hand and, and say, hey, how can, we, how can we work this out together? Uh, I think that's probably the biggest, the biggest way. Well, to, and it all to comes back that. to everything dealing with people and and humans is that uh, communicate. You know, if we communicate and and hear each other out, uh, a lot of times things can uh, de-escalate quickly and and um, can be much more harmonious if if people are willing to listen and communicate openly. Absolutely, so. absolutely. Was there a person that you supervised that you feel you had a real positive impact on their professional career? I would say yes. There was a uh, an officer that uh, I that worked for me when uh, when he originally started with the agency, and he he was a he was a he was a good patrol cop. I worked with him in an investigative. Uh, uh, unit where I supervised him. And as I watched him grow as an officer, I also saw that he was an informal leader within the group. And uh, I encouraged him to to take that first step and apply for a, uh, a, a lieutenant's position. And he, he kind of sat back and said, well, I really enjoy doing what I'm doing. And I, I, which I understand. Working as a worker bee can be one of the most fun things on the planet, being a patrol cop, being a detective, and because you, it's just a very enjoyable part of the job. But I also saw in him somebody that could, uh, could lead others and to help others grow. And so through some encouragement, he, he took that first step and became a lieutenant. And all along the way, uh, we worked together. He worked, uh, uh, he, he worked under me in, in a number of different uh, areas. And all along, I encouraged him to continue his education in, uh, in police management and leadership. And to this day, uh, I feel very fortunate that I had a chance to encourage him. He's now the assistant chief uh, of Bellevue. And I feel uh, like I had some encouragement and uh, ability to get him to, uh, to take that next step. And he's very well thought of. And I... I feel very proud uh, that he has accomplished everything that he's accomplished. Yeah, that's a great, great story and a great lesson in leadership. I mean, uh, I've said this many times before, but I often think of myself sometimes as, as a bit of a reluctant leader. And those of us that fit into that category uh, need that encouragement and need people to uh, you know, maybe push us to the next step and, and have us take a chance and whatever. And, and people that identify potentially uh, great leaders in their communities and help them get their uh, benefits all. So I, I think that's a great story. Yeah. Thank you. 
Uh, you know, from what I understand, uh, the police force is a pretty close-knit community, uh, one in which you, you tend to go out and socialize and sometimes maybe even vacation together. How were you able to balance your personal life and your professional life, uh, leadership life, with those that you were close with on a, on a personal nature? That was one of the hardest things to do at times was people that I got hired with, people that I've known for, for many, many years, as I uh, increased in the ranks, it became harder and harder to uh, to meet up with them for coffee or, uh, uh, well, I shouldn't say meet up with them for coffee, but to, to socialize with them outside of work. Uh, I was definitely socialized with them in uh, at work where we'd go have coffee or lunch. Uh, but outside, it became more and more difficult. And uh, for a lot of reasons, uh, I essentially stopped socializing with a lot of people that I had once socialized with. And a lot of, uh, a lot of people in leadership positions did. And that was for the fact that as I increased in rank, there was always that chance that I would um, – be supervise that person. And that happened on a number of occasions where people that I had socialized with in the past, I was now their supervisor. And it really is difficult to supervise somebody and treat them uh, equally and fairly as everybody else when everybody else knows that you were on vacation with them or that you socialize with them on a regular basis. And it really became a very difficult place for me. And I made that choice to, to not socialize with them. And I would explain that to them and say, this is really hard for me. Um, we're in a situation where I would, I would still love to socialize. However, um, at this point, my job comes first and the organization comes first. And for that reason, you know, it's probably best that we we don't meet up for 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 dinner outside of work or we don't uh, meet up meet up outside of work. And it was some under a couple of folks understood it and a couple of folks didn't. And uh, and I, I feel bad about that. But uh, the organization at that time comes first. Yeah, that, that's a hard situation because it's just, uh, you know, it's it's kind of like when you're at the top, everyone that uh, you're managing or supervising uh, watches you and judges you. And so uh, how you handle that uh, is very, very important. And, and yeah, I can see how you might have to make a sacrifice in, in that direction and, and um, you know, maybe lose some potentially great friends because of that. But uh, as you say, uh, sometimes the what you're doing is a bigger, more important thing at the time. And it's just one of the sacrifices you have to make. Yeah. And that's, that's where that modeling behavior uh, for other uh, supervisors and other managers really comes in. If they see uh, me as a deputy chief or as a major that is uh, slowing down in my socializing with people that I had socialized with and, and they say, hey, I, I see you don't hang out with so-and-so anymore. It's like, no, it's really it's too difficult uh, being in this position to be able to socialize with them. And so I was going to say, so I'm modeling that behavior and in hopes that they see why I'm doing that and that they can do that as managers and supervisors themselves and do the same thing for the same reasons. And it can happen in the opposite direction, too. I don't know if you experienced this, but I know I certainly did, where all of a sudden I wasn't getting invited to things that people in the company were doing uh, because I was the CEO. And so, uh, you know, they wanted to party and do something or whatever, and all of a sudden I wasn't invited. So it, it, it's hard to go in the opposite direction as well. Absolutely. You know, it's it's like, well, my feelings are a little hurt that I'm not invited. However, they also know that I won't I won't go. So, you know, uh, so yeah, so my feelings were hurt at times, but at the same time, I understood why. And, uh, it's just, you know, that's, that's part of being a leader in a, in a large or small organization. Yeah. So looking that you're retired now. So looking back over your career, uh, what are you most proud of? 
I'm most proud of the fact that I went from uh, a police officer to a deputy chief. And throughout the ranks, I did everything that I could to help others who wanted to promote into leadership positions, uh, to help to develop um, a vision for, for the future. Knowing that I wasn't going to be there forever, uh, I, I wanted to see those who I could see as good leaders move into those positions. And it helps foster a positive attitude uh, for the organization. And I'm very proud of the work that I did. I mean, there were so many fun things that I did, uh, like the SRO program and uh, starting up the domestic violence unit. Uh, those were as, as lieutenants, as a captain, um, uh, creating what I called the dream team, where these uh, the unit, when I went in there, was not really well thought of. And, you know, the old adage of getting the right people in the, on the right bus and in the right seats. And in doing that type of work, which I enjoyed, and getting a team that worked cohesively, and this was in uh, our training and hiring uh, unit, uh, I called them the dream team because they worked so well together. And the department uh, as a whole and the officers, they loved the training officers. They loved the type of training that they were getting. Um, the, the firearms uh, instructor and instructors, uh, it was just a, a great cadre of officers, even though some of them did different things. They had background investigations. It was kind of a conglomeration of everything in the hiring and training process. And uh, those guys came together and worked so cohesively with everybody in the department that um, that I just dubbed them the dream team. I mean, who would not want to work with these guys and gals? Yeah, that's great. So is that path still viable in today's law enforcement uh, departments? In other, in other words, can a patrol officer become the deputy chief of police or are, are they bringing uh, or is it more common to bring people in from the outside that have... Uh, um, you know, degrees and, and different experiences to run police forces these days? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, some agencies uh, may want to have a, 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 a new chief come from outside or a deputy chief come from outside. But for the most part, as you, you I think anybody can go from a patrol officer to a deputy chief to a chief. Um, and in looking at the chief that I worked with when I retired, Linda Pillow, she was an outstanding chief, and she she was homegrown. She was homegrown from the department, uh, from an officer all the way to to chief, and uh, she was she was everything that you would want a chief to be within a within the organization. She understood it from the ground up, uh, and she worked collaboratively with all the other. Uh, like the fire department and the water department and right. different departments. Different, thank you. Yeah. Yes. The, the, yes. Within the city departments, uh, she worked collaboratively and we were able to work well together. Um, and she modeled that behavior uh, through uh, all the way down uh, to our department too. So uh, I think in answering your question, can anybody raise up from officer to deputy chief or chief? Absolutely. And it's you. It's it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of training. It's a lot of time, and uh, and if you put in the hard work, and you uh, are willing to take risks at times. In other words, put yourself out there. You can't promote. You can't be a leader unless you put yourself out there. Unless you take some risk, and I think that's critical in any. Uh, organization, whether it's a law enforcement organization or a business. Uh, and I'm sure you understand being a CEO and coming up from uh, from basically from the coming up the ranks uh, of the organization that you built, you have to take risks and being willing to put yourself out there and being willing to have some failures. And really, a lot of it has to do with if you have a failure, 
It's how do you deal with that failure? Are you going to just have sour grapes and, and feel, oh, woe is me? Or are you going to, you know, put your, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, um, and learn from that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's very well said. You know, and I think someone who has gone through a succession plan, I did a lot of research and, and most of the business research in the literature will, will tell you that you have a much higher success rate of a successful CEO or successful department head um, when that person comes from within. But it's human nature for us to think, oh, let's bring in this white knight and, you know, they'll make all these wonderful changes from the outside and, and give us all we don't have. Uh, but the research shows that uh, that usually is not as successful as someone that's homegrown, someone that's come up through the organization, understands the culture and, and steps into the, to the next role above them. So. Yeah, and I would say I, would say I worked for um, chiefs both from the inside and the outside over my 35-plus years with Bellevue. And um, I got to say the, the first and last chief that I worked with were – just absolutely dynamic rock stars. So, uh, Sherry, usually at this time of the interview, I ask all my guests a common question, which is in relation to leadership, what would be your pearl of wisdom that you could give our listeners today? I would say trust the people that work for you and demonstrate that you trust them. If you give them a project, let them do the project on their own, in their way, with a little bit of guidance if necessary but trust that they're going to do it. And then once it's done, praise them in public and say, wow, that was a really great job. Uh, and also to uh, model good ethical behavior because that will circle around and create trust. Yeah, great advice. You know, so now that, uh, you know, you're retired, if you could have given some advice to Sherry Baker in nineteen eight or in the early nineteen eighties, what advice would you give her? Just keep going. Do what you're doing. Um, look to the future. Work hard. Get your education. And um, and trust what you're doing. Trust your instincts. Yeah, that's great. And now that you're retired. Do you feel like uh, coming from what I would, you know, uh, observe as being kind of a high-stress, uh, high-risk job uh, over your whole career now in retirement, can you relax? Can you kick back? Can you can you be that uh, uh, that relaxed person that you want to be, or is it hard to let go of all that other stuff? You know, at first it was really hard to let go. I would say it took a couple of years just to learn to just okay, I'm not doing this anymore. I can just relax. And it did. It took a while to to do all that. And the further my career is in my rearview mirror, uh, the easier it is to just let go of some of the some of the hard stuff. I, I'm very proud of what I did uh, in law enforcement and I feel very uh, happy that I was as successful as I was. Uh, you know I could I could go back and talk about uh, a a million different incidences where it was it came it had a positive outcome and how thrilling it feels to have that positive outcome. Uh, I look at law enforcement today and I understand how scary it can be at times. And it, you know, part of it, I, I would almost want to go back and say, okay, how can we how can we make law enforcement better? Uh, what can I do? to help you feel better about this. And that a lot of that goes to officer wellness and how important officer wellness is. So, yeah, well, that's great. Well, congratulations on a wonderful career. And I know, you know, the, the public is, is pretty, um, uh, used to, or, or, you know, um, comfortable now, uh, thanking people in the military for their service, but I don't think we do it as enough for, uh, uh, our police force. So uh, I want to thank you for all you did for our community, uh, for for uh, providing such great service and, and keeping us safe and, and protecting uh, those things we think are special. So uh, thank you so much for that, and thank you for this interview. I really enjoyed it, and I learned a lot. Well, thank you, Steve. I, I, it, was, uh, it, was, it was a very good interview. I, I appreciate it, and I look forward to, uh, to talking to you further about, about what my career was all about. 
Awesome. Thank you, Sherry. Thank you for listening to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. To listen to all my interviews, subscribe to Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and many other popular podcast platforms. Some of these interviews are on video, and you can search YouTube for Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson. You can also access the entire library of interviews on my website, orange.coaching.com, and that is orangetheword.coaching.com, and go to the Media Center and click on Podcasts or Video Gallery. You can also enter the website from pilpodcast.com. Thank you.